Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartes producing and engineering in Seattle. Well, coming up, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Ryan Gardner. He is an attorney with First Liberty, and he's representing a pastor in Ohio, uh, in Bryan, Ohio, who has been served with 18 criminal charges for violating the city's zoning laws. We'll explain all of that, but he and the congregation have opened their doors to the homeless. In fact, they're located right next door to homeless shelter, and the city has come down hard. We'll explain all of that. There's an arraignment coming up on the 11th. Uh, Ryan Gardner will join us to talk about that. And then we will also hear from Owen Strahan, Christianity and Wokeness, coming up uh, in the program as well. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's um, some of the day's headlines. It's been quite a day, has it not? <laughs> Speaking to engineer. Dave on the other side of the glass. Well, former President Trump's attorney argued before a federal appeals court uh, on Tuesday that the former commander in chief and the 2024 frontrunner has presidential immunity from charges stemming from special counsel Jack Smith's investigation while warning that the president is prosecuting his number uh, one political opponent and his greatest electoral threat. That's a direct quote from the former president. Well, both Trump and Smith attended the hearing before the uh, federal D.C. appeals court. Uh, the panel of three judges, two of whom were appointed by President Biden, heard arguments from Trump attorney and special counsel Jack Smith's team. A Trump attorney, John Sauer, he argued that the president has absolute immunity. That's in quotes. Even after leaving off an, an argument that the judges appeared to be pretty skeptical of, well, Judge Karen Henderson, an appointee from former President George Herbert Walker Bush, fired back saying, I think it's uh, paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal law, end quote. But Sauer argued that Biden, the current incumbent of the presidency, is prosecuting his number one political opponent and his greatest electoral threat. Meanwhile, Smith's team argued that uh, presidents are not entitled to absolute immunity and that Trump's alleged actions fall outside a president's official job duties. Well, the president has a unique constitutional role, but he is not above the law. Separation of powers, principles, constitutional text, history and precedent, along with uh, immunity doctrines, all point to the conclusion that a former president enjoys no immunity from prosecution. That's a quote from the prosecutor, James Pierce, adding that a case in which a former president is alleged to have sought to overturn or rather overturn an election is not the place to recognize some novel form of immunity. Well, Henderson pressed Pierce on how the court could come to its decision in a way that would not open the floodgates of investigations against ex-presidents. Well, Pierce said he did not feel there would be a sea change of vindictive tit-for-tat prosecutions in the future and said the allegations against Trump are unprecedented. Well, I guarantee you if this is, in fact, um, uh, ruled in uh, opposition to Trump and his claims, the floodgates will open on both sides of the political aisle, I would predict. Well, Pierce said he didn't feel that would be the case. Never before has there been allegations that a sitting president has with private individuals and using the levers of power sought to fundamentally subvert the Democratic Republic and electoral system. Pierce said. And frankly, if that kind of fact pattern arises again, I think it would be awfully scary if there weren't some sort of mechanism by which to reach that criminally. 
end quote. Well, Pierce said the uh, the country would be in for a frightening future if Trump is not prosecuted for alleged crimes. On the other hand, Trump's attorney says the country will be in a for a frightening future if Trump is, in fact, uh, held accountable. Sauer pushed back and said the floodgates uh, again will be opened. Well, Trump spoke outside the courtroom shortly after the uh, the hearing concluded. I think it is very unfair when a political opponent is prosecuted by Biden's Department of Justice, the former president said. They're losing in every poll. They are losing in almost every demographic. He added, I think they feel this is the way that they are going to try to win. It is a very bad precedent. He said his prosecution would be the opening of a Pandora's box. And it is a very sad thing that's happened with the uh, this whole situation. And he went on from there. Well, the court will ultimately decide how to interpret the um, uh, accountability that a president uh, enjoys and a post-president, whether or not there is some immunity there. Well, GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley says she should have stated the obvious when it comes to her Civil War comments, but that nobody on the ground is talking about it. The former president remains the front runner in New Hampshire's Republican presidential primary with GOP rival Nikki Haley firmly in second place. But the big question with two weeks to go, a little less than two weeks until New Hampshire holds the first primary and second overall contest in the Republican nominating calendar, Following the uh, January 15th Iowa caucuses is how formidable Trump actually is. Two polls released on Tuesday paint very different pictures. A University of New Hampshire CNN survey shows Haley within striking distance of the former president, who remains the commanding frontrunner in the latest poll in Iowa and in national surveys as he makes his third straight White House run. Trump stands at 39 percent in the UNH CNN survey among those likely to vote in New Hampshire's Republican presidential primary with Haley at 32 percent. The poll of 1,864 New Hampshire voters likely to cast a ballot in the state's Republican presidential primary was conducted online between the 4th and 8th of this month. Haley, of course, is a former two-term South Carolina governor who later served as ambassador to the United Nations and the Trump administration. She soared in recent months, thanks in part to her well-regarded performance in the first three Republican presidential presidential debates. Well, over the past month, Haley has uh, caught up with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in the latest Iowa poll and in national surveys for a distant second place. But there are questions now being raised as to whether or not uh, Trump holds the commanding lead everyone believes him to hold. By the way, Christie is once again staking his presidential campaign on New Hampshire as he makes a second bid for the White House following an unsuccessful run back in 2016. Well, I appreciated a column written by Cal Thomas. Uh, you recall uh, Cal Thomas. Uh, it, the headline read, The Evil of Two Lessers, which I thought was probably pretty appropriate this time around. And he writes, some voters in recent elections have complained about being forced to choose between the lesser of two evils. In the 2024 election, it appears we are heading for a worse choice, the evil of two lessers. Donald Trump continues demeaning and defaming anyone who disagrees with him. He repeats unproven claims that the 2020 election was stolen. A myriad of other inaccurate statements have apparently had a negative influence on President Biden, who has joined him in the mud pit. Recall, it was Biden who promised to bring us together. Always an impossibility, given the conflicting ideologies of Republicans and Democrats these days. Well, in his speech last week near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, 
Uh, Biden invoked George Washington as an example of selfless man who refused to be crowned a king, resigned his commission as an army general following the Revolutionary War and limited himself to two terms as president. And aside, Washington engaged in an insurrection, according to the definition of that word, an act or instance of rising in revolt, rebellion and resistance against civil authority or an established government. That's dictionary.com. Wasn't the British government established over the colonies, however tyrannical it was? Some insurrections turn out um, better than others. The insurrection at the Capitol on the 6th of January 2021, if you accept the term, whether one believes it fits the definition or not, was still a rebellion against a legitimately established government with the express purpose of changing the election results. But I digress. Again, quoting Cal Thomas, Biden's speech shows voters that 2024 is shaping up as a contest between two lightweights pretending to be heavyweights. If Trump is elected, Biden said America will become like Germany in the 30s. The very future of democracy is at stake, he claimed. By the way, it is a constitutional republic. Uh, This is how Democrats think only when they win elections is the country safe. Well, he goes on from there, and I'll share a little bit more of it with you when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Just before the break, we were talking about uh, Cal Thomas's article, The Evil of Two Lessers, in which he's suggesting people aren't altogether satisfied with the two likely front runners in the presidential election coming up uh, later this year. Uh, we'll uh, continue to take a look at that. But I also want to mention that coming up later this hour, a conversation with Ryan Gardner. He's First Liberty attorney representing a pastor in uh, Bryan, Ohio, facing 18 criminal charges for violating the city's zoning laws. Now, you think he probably busted some windows, you know, did a bank job or something. No, he's opened the church to homeless, kind of an overflow of a, a homeless shelter next door. And not just homeless, but others who are in distress, uh, opening the church 24 hours a day to make it available for them to uh, to crash if they need to. Anyway, we'll talk with him about that. And then later in the program, and i got to find my notes here because things have... Um, shifted in the course of uh, today's program, uh, a conversation I had with Owen Strahan, Christianity and Wokeness. He and I had that conversation, and we'll only play two segments of it today, and the third will be on the podcast if you want to hear the rest of that conversation. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, again, returning to Cal Thomas, uh, he writes that this isn't Biden's first trip into the uh, into the mud during the 2012 presidential campaign. The vice president, then vice president, told a black audience that Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney would put you all back in chains. I find that particularly offensive as an African-American woman. Anyway, Biden apparently thinks his posturing is a uh, as a pugilist rather than a pragmatist will allow him to outpunch Trump. That isn't likely to happen as Biden has been viewed as a nice guy. No one calls Trump nice. Where is the corrosive language getting us? Why can't we uh, have a true debate over the best ways to fix our problems? Claiming your opponents would rule like a Nazi or that the other is a crook solves nothing. Well, when polls show Biden and his policies are increasingly unpopular, the president has two choices. One is to change course, which he is unlikely to do because that would mean acknowledging he had been wrong. When was the last time you heard a politician admit error? The other uh, avenue is to ignore his failed policies from the open border to the national debt, crime and foreign policy and claim if he loses to Trump, it will be Armageddon time for the country. That strategy is not working so far. Well, polls also show most Democrats and Republicans prefer neither candidate. If 
Trump, uh, Trump's unbecoming criminal trials result in convictions that might diminish his appeal, except um, uh, to the Kool-Aid drinkers, uh, he writes. Uh, perhaps Biden's potential impeachment, if the evidence of financial wrongdoing by his family can be proven, might have the same effect on some of the president's supporters. But this late in the game, it seems unlikely. One scenario that could assuage voter angst. Could the rules be changed at both conventions this summer so that if Trump and Biden win enough of their primaries to claim the nomination of their respective parties, the delegates could vote to replace them? One might wish leaders of both parties could get better and get together rather and offer a deal that promises we'll not nominate our guy if you agree not to nominate your guy. That might sound appealing to some, but it also seems equally unlikely. Too bad. For America. Again, Cal Thomas, the evil of two lessers. Now, it was suggested earlier today when Michelle Obama, in an interview, suggested that she was very concerned about the course of the nation. She didn't make a distinction between the two candidates, although her the focus of her comments were primarily uh, toward Donald Trump. But she did not support the current Democrat president either. And some are suggesting that this was just a... um, an introduction to her as the uh, the ultimate candidate. Some are suggesting that uh, the current president will not seek reelection. And at some point, perhaps during the convention, there'll be a shift and she'll be nominated. Well, all of that, of course, is speculation. And to embrace it would be a bit foolish at this point. But it is in the air. Thought we'd mention it. But I thought his headline, The Evil of Two Lessers, uh, does, in fact, um, describe how many people who are looking to um, the election and in November of 2024 and wondering how on earth for whom on earth will I vote? The good news is we don't have to rely solely on earth. We can pray for wisdom, direction and help. Well, another new secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin is currently being treated for prostate cancer. We just learned today along with the president who learned the same today as doctors announced after it was revealed last week, the Pentagon chief did not inform the white house of his recent days long stay in the hospital diagnosed with prostate cancer early last month. Austin has admitted a rather was admitted to Walter Reed national military medical center in Bethesda, Maryland on December 22nd for an infection. And while there he underwent a uh, prostate, prostatectomy or something very like that procedure. I don't need to know since, you know, well, I don't have to explain. Uh, Anyway, the White House is launching a review of cabinet protocols, uh, given what occurred over the last several days in the Defense Department for delegating authority in the wake of the defense secretary's recent secret hospitalization following a procedure to treat prostate cancer. That's according to a memo uh, from the White House. The memo uh, from the chief of staff, Jeff Zients, is addressed to cabinet secretaries and directs departments and agencies to submit their agency specific delegation of authority protocols by Friday, January 12th to the Office of Cabinet Affairs. The White House is conducting a review of agency protocols for a delegation of authority from cabinet members. The memo states the purpose of this memo is to direct your agencies to submit your existing protocols for a delegation of authority to the White House Office of Cabinet Affairs and to ensure an updated process for such delegations in the interim. The Office of Cabinet Affairs will convey these protocols to the White House Chief of Staff. End quote. Well, the memo says that while the review is ongoing, cabinet agencies must ensure they follow procedures in the event that a delegation of authority is required. Well, the memo directs the agency to notify the Office of Cabinet Affairs and White House Chief of Staff in the event of a delegation of authority or potential delegation. And it also directs agencies to document in writing that the delegation of authority is in effect. 
at issue is the fact that the White House was unaware of um, uh, the defense secretary's hospitalization, where he was, um, uh, the fact that he was not uh, capacitated. He was not um, they were not told, nor was his number two, who apparently had the flu. So it was uh, and this was during conflict in the Middle East involving military decision making. So that's at the heart of all of that um, would be confusion. Well, Dr. Fauci is back in the news. He said he didn't recall specifics on COVID origins, pandemic policies or over 100 times uh, in closed door testimony today. He testified in the first of two days um, beginning on Monday uh, over 100 times that he did not recall important information and conversations relevant to the origins of COVID-19 and the U.S. pandemic response he presided over. The face of our nation's response to the world's worst public health crisis does not recall key details about COVID-19 origins and pandemic era policies. The House Coronavirus Select Committee Chairman Brad Winstrup uh, said in a statement Monday night, the potentially preventable pandemic ultimately resulted in the deaths of nearly 1.2 million Americans The Ohio Republican also noted, well, in late November, uh, Winstrup, he announced that Fauci had agreed to testify before the subcommittee in a private setting over the course of two days before retiring at the end of 2022. Fauci served as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and chief medical advisor under the Trump and Biden administrations. Well, during the first seven months of the uh, transcribed interview on Monday, Um, seven hours, I should say. It probably felt like months, but only seven hours. Fauci repeatedly defended his previous Senate testimony in which he claimed the National Institutes of Health did not fund gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China, which was conducting research on bat coronaviruses that may have produced the COVID pandemic. Similar to his hearing exchanges with Senator Rand Paul, Fauci disagreed with Congress's definition of gain of function to avoid admitting that the NIH funded potentially dangerous research that led to the pandemic's outbreak. Gain of function research refers to making viruses more infectious or deadly for laboratory study. Fauci also testified that he approved of all foreign and domestic NIAID grants without reviewing the proposals and conceded that he was unable to confirm whether NIAID has any procedure in place to conduct oversight of the foreign labs they fund. Dr. Fauci's testimony today uncovered drastic and systematic failures in America's public health system, Winstrup said. And while leading the nation's COVID-19 response and influencing public narratives, he simultaneously had no idea what was happening under his own jurisdiction at NIAID. Furthermore, when presented with his February 2020 email to NIH, the National Institutes of Health officials, demonstrating he was then aware of the gain-of-function research taking place in China, He backpedaled, saying he should not have stated the Wuhan lab's involvement as fact in the email. In other words, this really wasn't very helpful. In his second round of questioning today, Winstrup said he plans on asking Fauci about mask and lockdown mandates, his policy positions related to these uh, restrictions and his role in promoting, editing and approving the March 2020 Proximal Origins scientific paper that sought to disprove the lab leak theory. The second half of the transcribed interview on Tuesday will also last for seven hours. A pro-choice professor at the University of Notre Dame has lost a defamation lawsuit against a conservative student newspaper that she claimed misrepresented and defamed her. 
We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments, but we do need to take a quick break. A reminder coming up uh, later this hour, we'll talk with Ryan Gardner. He is an attorney with First Liberty representing Pastor Chris Avell. He's facing 18 criminal charges for opening his church to those who had no other place to go. That's coming up later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing to uh, march through some of the day's headlines and a conversation with Ryan Gardner, a, an attorney with First Liberty, representing a pastor who's facing 18 criminal charges for opening the church for the homeless and others in distress 24 hours a day. That's coming up in our next segment. We'll also hear from Owen Strahan, author of Christianity and Wokeness in the five o'clock hour. By the way, you can hear that interview in its entirety at our podcast at georgienerice.com. Well, a pro-choice professor at the University of Notre Dame has lost a defamation lawsuit against a conservative student newspaper she claimed misrepresented and defamed her. Well, a sociology and global affairs professor sued the Irish Rover in May over two of its articles that she said contained false and defamatory information, according to a copy of the complaint. Uh, the complaint specifically named two student journalists. Well, in response, the rover argued the lawsuit violated the state of Indiana's strategic lawsuit against public participation law. Well, the county judge ruled against the uh, the um, professor on Monday and wrote that the alleged defamatory statements were, in fact, true, not made with actual malice and did not contain a defamatory inference. The college fix reported uh, Stevens noted that. Uh, there were uh, no damages that could be casually linked to the articles in question, and the reporting was lawful. The court concludes that the allegedly defamatory statements were made in the furtherance of the defendant's right to free speech, were made in connection with a public issue, were made with good faith and with a reasonable basis in law and fact, the judge wrote. Well, Kay, and this is the professor, uh, has shared a number of pro-abortion resources on her Twitter, labeling herself a Notre Dame abortion rights expert, offering to help as a private citizen if you have issues with access or cost, according to the previous social media posts reported on by the, uh, uh, the college paper. As such, the court determined that Kay had a documented history of advocating abortion legalization in public comments through social media and published commentary, such as newspapers and academic journals. Suck's action, the court found, meant that Kay intentionally placed herself into the national discussion on the subject. Well, the student newspaper also reported that the professor had a sign on her campus office door that read, this is a safe spa- uh, space rather, to get help and information on all health care issues and access, confidentiality with care and compassion. On her door, Kay included her non-Notre Dame email where students could reach her along with her letter J. Uh, some suggested that the, uh, the letter denoted uh, when a Notre Dame professor is willing to help students access abortion, including Plan B, known as the morning after pill, and Plan C abortion pills which are used to end a pregnancy up to 12 weeks. However, Kay claimed it only signaled that she was willing to help victims of sexual assault. The judge decided otherwise. Well, another news that I thought was rather interesting, a microscopic metal fragment found on the tie of infamous plane hijacker D.B. Cooper could help reveal his true identity. Well, private investigator and researcher Eric Ullis is ringing in the new year with new Breadcrumbs to share. I would not be surprised at all if 2024 was the year we figure out who this guy was, he says. I'm not holding my breath. Well, this particle is part uh, stainless steel, part titanium, 
Ullis believes the itsy bitsy discovery can be traced to a sophisticated metal fabric shop. According to Ullis, after his legendary disappearance 52 years ago, the man known as D.B. Cooper left behind a critical clue, a clip-on tie. After the money and the man vanished without a trace, this possession was spotted on Cooper's seat on the back row of the plane, 18E to be exact. Ellis said the tie was purchased at a J.C. Penney around Christmas 1964 for $1.49. Oh, those were the good old days. Well, the evidence is currently under federal lock and key, but scientists who examined it were able to pull more than 100,000 particles from it. He applied the sticky stubs. Um, they're like um, carbon circles uh, that uh, could apply to portions of the tie. And then when you pull them off, you're pulling off some of the particles from the tie. He explains it makes no sense to me, but maybe to you, you apply modern state of the art technology to it. Things uh, they didn't have back in 71. When this occurred, it tells the story. Well, 18 months ago, he used us patents to trace three of these fragments from the tie to a specific plant in Pennsylvania called crucible steel headquartered in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, a significant subcontractor, all throughout the 60s. Uh, It supplied the lion's share of titanium and stainless steel for Boeing aircraft. Well, all this claimed evidence points to Cooper having in-depth knowledge of the 727 hijacked and of the Seattle area. Workers at Crucible Steel were known to travel and visit their contractor, Boeing. This is also the time, 1971, when Boeing had this significant downturn, the Big Depression, with the last person leaving Seattle, a please turn out the lights billboard sign, uh, Ullis points out. It's uh, reasonable to deduce that D.B. Cooper may well have been part of that downturn. He admits his findings are not yet concrete. He's not crossing any suspects off the list. However, he believes from what he's seen, all roads lead to titanium research engineer, Vince Peterson from Pittsburgh. Seen side by side with an artist rendering of Cooper, Peterson passed away in 2002. I can put him in Seattle. I can put him in Boeing. He says he is a compelling person of interest. He's definitely someone I'm going to continue to dig into. So for those of you who are following this whole thing, there you have it. A real possibility. Or not. Either way. Well, Islamic jihadists are committing genocide against Christians in Africa. The most dangerous country in Africa for Christians is Nigeria, with over 52,000 Christians having been slaughtered in the past decade. 18,000 churches, 2,200 schools have been burned down. Muslims celebrated Christmas Day in 2023 by hacking to death over 100 Christians with machetes. Nigeria is the most populous nation in Africa, with over 220 million citizens. Muslims represent slightly over 50% of the population, ruled by Fulani Muslims since 2014. The central federal government has done little to stop the genocide committed by Fulani Muslim terrorist groups or Boko Haram, which means Western education is forbidden. The group's official title is People Committed to the Propagation of the Prophet's Teaching and Jihad. Launched in 2009, Boko Haram's objective was to create an Islamic state under Sharia law, Presently, 12 northern Muslim-majority states have imposed Sharia law on Muslims, a parallel legal system applied to infidels. The Obama administration urged the Nigerian government not to use military force against Boko Haram, claiming the slaughter was due to social inequities between Muslim Fulani herdsmen and Christian farmers caused by climate change. Oh, would that life were so simple. A Nigerian nun, Sister Moniker, Chikwi said it is tough to tell Nigerian Christians this isn't a religious conflict 
Since what they've seen are Fulani fighters clad entirely in black, chanting Allah Akbar and screaming death to Christians. But then again, it's just inequities and global warming. USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, provided more than 500 million dollars in aid to Nigeria in fiscal year 21 years 21 and 22 much of the aid went to the northern region of Nigeria where the majority of atrocities are committed well following the slaughter of more than 200 Christians over the 2022 Christmas holiday season Roman Catholic Bishop Kuka of um, Sokoto Nigeria called the Fulani Islamist sons of Satan who came from the deepest pits of hell those are direct quotes Pope Francis, the Roman Catholic Marxist liberation Jesuit, should be uh, defending Christians, but has said nothing about Islamic atrocities in Nigeria or anywhere else in the world. He's busy condemning Israelis for defending themselves and accusing Israel of killing two Christian women in Gaza's church. When has the, uh, well, we'll leave it at that. Nigeria also led the world in the number of Christians abducted, sexually assaulted, forcibly married or abused. In 2014, Boko Haram abducted 276 girls from a government secondary school in Chibok, Borno State. Few have been returned to their families. Most were forced into marriage. Since Chibok, thousands of school-aged children have been kidnapped and thousands of teachers killed. Children are no longer being educated. Christianity and Western civilization are under attack all over the world, from Islamic jihadists to communists to Marxist atheists in the West. Nowhere is it more dangerous than in Africa. The mainstream media has closed its eyes to reporting on Islamic genocide. The mosque is destroyed in Gaza, storing Hamas military weapons, and the world is aghast. 18,000 churches in Africa are destroyed, and the world yawns. No U.N. votes are condemning the atrocities. No Washington, D.C. rallies are protesting the slaughters and enslavement. No online campaign from the former first lady. Jihadists are active not only in Nigeria, but elsewhere in Africa. In Eastern Africa, Somalia, Kenya, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Mozambique. In Western Africa, Sahal, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, Togo, and Benin. Central Africa, Lake Chad, Northern Nigeria, Cameroon, and Chad. Recognize that Islamic terrorist organizations are alive and expanding. Their goal is Islamic world domination, and the groups include Boko Haram, ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, and Al-Qaeda. Support local African governments that are battling the terrorists. Support Christian organizations fighting for survival in Africa. Contact elected officials in support of freedom for Christians. Invest in the U.S. military and increase U.S. gray zone actions against jihadists. Just food for thought. Up next, a local pastor, a U.S. pastor in Ohio, who's facing 18 criminal charges for opening the church to those who need sanctuary. Ryan Gardner will join us with First Liberty. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, First Liberty is representing Pastor Chris Avell. He's uh, the pastor of Dad's Place. It's a church in Bryan, Ohio, where he's facing 18 criminal charges for violating the city's zoning laws. Now, you might imagine, what on earth did Pastor Avell do? Well, the city is going after him because um, earlier in the year, Pastor Avell, he opened the church 24 hours a day, seven days a week 
for the homeless population there. In November of last year, the city sent a letter ordering the church to stop allowing overnight guests or face criminal prosecution. Well, on New Year's Eve, police handed the pastor a packet of multiple charges and violations. Well, here to talk with us about that is Ryan Gardner with First Liberty, representing Pastor Chris Avell. Thank you so much for joining us, but more importantly, thank you for representing Pastor Avell. Happy to be here, and it's really an honor to represent people like Pastor Avell. Yeah, it, it really is an incredible case, and it, it begs the question, what on earth is the city council thinking? But I'm racing ahead. Let's, let's start back at the beginning. Um, tell us a little bit about Pastor Avell and his church, Dad's Place, and the decision that he and I suppose the congregation made to make their facility available to the homeless population. Uh, and their church is n- located next door to a, a facility that is for the homeless population. Tell us a little bit about backstory. Absolutely. So Pastor Avell, uh, he, he pastors the, the church dad's place. They've been in Bryan, Ohio for around five years now. And from the moment the church opened its doors, they had this vision and they had this calling really to care for the least of these. That They really take seriously the, the parable in Matthew about the sheep and the goat. And I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And that verse really was the genesis of this vision that they had for the future. So through the first few years of their operation, they would take in people basically on an emergency basis when you're dealing with extreme weather, extreme heat, extreme cold, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And one piece of this that is truly ironic is that they would take people in that the Bryan Police Department would bring to them. And so they did this for a number of years. And then in March of 2023, they decided to fully invest in this ministry that they've been dreaming of for, for a few years and to open their doors 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's it's really a more informal kind of program in a lot of ways. The idea is they want to give people a place to go who have nowhere else to go. Now, maybe that is is someone who is truly homeless and and needs a a place for shelter for the night, but maybe there's other situations too. Maybe maybe there's some sort of situation where someone just needs a place to cool off. They've had, you know, a a fight with their spouse and they've had something going on with their family and they want to offer that place of of love and support and to just show the love of Jesus to anyone who walks through their doors. So so that's the vision that they had. And they began doing this in March, and they did it for a number of months without incident. And in fact, the police continued to bring people to Dad's place in the months after they began operating 24-7. And during this time, they maybe would have somewhere between 5 to 12 people maybe stay the night overnight. But then in November, as you referred to, that, that's when the city first took notice of this and took a more hostile position. They, they sent a letter to the church basically ordering it to shut its doors and to put these people back out on the streets. Now, one would assume there had to have been some sort of incident that would prompt the city to say, no, we're not going to allow this any longer. Were there, uh, was there a fight? Was there some sort of altercation? Now, they're, they're located next to uh, the sanctuary of Williams County Homeless Shelter. Um, was there some mitigating circumstance that led the city to say, OK, we've had enough? No, we're not aware of, of any circumstance beyond the fact that perhaps someone in the city didn't notice this happening, finally took notice. And, and they pulled the levers of power to cause the city to take all of these adverse actions against the city and to really go on a campaign 
to not not only to humiliate this pastor and to also drag him into criminal proceedings. I've seen a lot of things at First Liberty, but the fact that you're criminalizing caring for the homeless is truly unprecedented. Yeah, absolutely. There's no charge that he's mistreating people who've come uh, to dad's place. There's no charge other than we don't like what you're doing. Now, as you mentioned, on New Year's Eve, law enforcement served the pastor with 18 criminal charges, and they're calling them zoning violations. uh, And they did that in front of his congregation. I know that he says that he was humiliated and embarrassed to learn about the charges from a friend initially who read the news in the local newspaper. So they've seemed to have gone out of their way uh, to embarrass and humiliate him. Um, Where does this stand at this point, and what are the charges essentially? Well, let me circle back to to the part about him being served on New Year's Eve, because there's a little more to the story that that I think you might be interested in hearing. So obviously, uh, we came on to this case during the the holiday break, you know, late in the year. And when that happened, I reached out to the city prosecutor, basically about the fact that my client had not been properly served with these charges and, and was even discussing the possibility of waiving actual service to save him the very sort of embarrassment that he suffered. But rather than work with me, the city went around my back without telling telling me or anybody else at First Liberty, and they served in front of his congregation. Mm. And be, beyond that, I requested basically as a professional courtesy time to get my paperwork filed with the state of Ohio so First Liberty could enter this matter. And instead of, again, giving me time to the prosecution to post any sort of delay in his arraignment, and in fact, suggested on two occasions that my client forego his constitutional right to have counsel present in court with him and that he go at it alone. So Again, that, that gives you another idea of the, yeah. of the hostility that, that we're encountering from the city on this matter. Is this typical of the city? Was it a complete surprise or is this something that one would expect if you knew the, the city council and how it functions with the, uh, the Christian community in that uh, in that area? Uh, this is not typical in any case that I've ever been a part of. So, so I would think that, no, that this kind of behavior is unprecedented, especially, I mean, talking to, to criminal defense attorneys, trying to force someone to go into court unrepresented who, in fact, has counsel is, is completely just unacceptable and a violation of rights, frankly. How has the community responded? I know that Pastor Avell has said that he's received support from the community and uh, the homeless shelter that is is close by. How generally has the community responded to this, uh, and are they communicating with the city council? I'm not aware of any communications, but I, I would say that the community he seems to, to that place really seems to be a light to this community in so many ways. I know that the homeless shelter next door is supportive of this ministry, and in fact, they've been on the record with, with other other media outlets saying that they are supportive of this work and they're thankful to have Dad's place there. There is a severe housing shortage in Bryan, Ohio, and, and the surrounding communities, and so Dad's place is just working to meet the needs of its communities. And often, that homeless shelter fills up, and people have nowhere else to go, which is why they end up in a church. I mean, think about this: nobody wants to to spend, you know any long amount of time living in a church. This, this is a ministry designed to help people who have entered a rough patch for whatever reason to, to find their way, and, and whether that, that is helping them, connecting them with other state or local resources to find housing, whether that's dealing with, with any mental or physical ailments they might have, whatever it is, Dad's Place is just trying to, to be that light and that link for the members of, of its communities. 
in addition to, to meeting their spiritual needs. Yeah. And the pastor said specifically that this is his calling. This is the purpose for which the church is functioning. They want to be the church and extending the hand of grace and mercy out into the the broader community. Well, what happens next? And are you optimistic that this will end well? What happens next is uh, the pastor will be arraigned on Thursday, the 11th. And we will move forward in fighting these charges and trying to get them dismissed. And I will say that that I am optimistic ultimately about this because I know the law is on our side. What the city is doing is, is a blatant violation of the First Amendment of federal law, of Ohio law. They are completely disregarding rights that the pastor and his church have to live according to to their conscience and to exercise their religion freely without fear of retribution from the government. Well, it really is an extraordinary story, and it's hard to imagine that it, it's uh, taken place, but of course it has. And I, again, I'm so grateful um, that First Liberty is there to uh, support this pastor and the congregation and to hold the city accountable for its own laws. Um, at the um, arraignment on the 11th, what's likely to happen there? You're, you'd like to see it dismissed. Is is that an opportunity where things could end, or is it more likely that it'll extend uh, beyond that first uh, court appearance? It, it's hard to, to know. I don't have a crystal ball in front of me about how the judge is going to read the case and how the judge is going to react. What, what could very likely be the case is, is this will be more of a pro forma thing like any other criminal case where you, you will go in and Charges will be read and a plea of not guilty will be entered, that that kind of thing. Well, we will certainly be watching with interest, and I would encourage all of our listeners to pray for for First Liberty and for this pastor and congregation that are attempting to live as Christ has uh, encouraged us to live, and that is to extend grace to those who are struggling. Uh, Ryan Gardner, thank you so much for your efforts, and thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. If you want to continue to follow this case, you can always see more at FirstLiberty.org. FirstLiberty.org. Thank you so much. Again, Thanks. Ryan Gardner is with First Liberty, representing Pastor Chris Avell and Dad's Place, the church there in um, in uh, Bryan, Ohio. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news coming up next. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I've been looking forward to the conversation we're just about to have with Dr. Owen Strand. He's the author of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. It's published by Salem Books. He points out that wokeness has been a term that's widely used by the media and the left since 2014. Well, since then, the idea of wokeness has bled into the culture, into television, and now even our churches. Preachers are speaking on critical race theory, telling their congregations that silence is violence and that whiteness is white supremacy. And while these pastors might mean well, this so-called woke gospel is not true justice or true Christianity. Well, Dr. Um, uh, Strand is the provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary and senior fellow with the Family Research Council. He's become an expert on social justice and wokeness. In his latest book, Christianity and Wokeness, uh, Dr. Strand writes about the alternative religion of wokeness, one that is far from Christ's teaching. And by diving into the teachings of critical race theory and its problematic cousin, wokeness, 
Dr. Strand has a simple warning to the American church. By embracing wokeness, you're embracing teaching antithetical to the gospel. And that's an important point we need to uh, to ponder here today. Well, again, Dr. Strand is a provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary and a senior fellow with the Family Research Council, earned his Ph.D. in theology from uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's the author of some 20 books, including Reenchanting Humanity, A Theology of Mankind. He lives with his family in Conway, Arkansas, and I am just delighted that he is with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us having you back on. I really appreciate it. Well, this is such an important topic, and I fear that many of us are using the words or even referencing some of the concepts without fully understanding what they mean or the implications of it. So this is such a timely book. And as the title would suggest, this book is written uh, for those who embrace a Christian worldview or at least have some curiosity about a Christian worldview to discover whether or not it's compatible. Wokeness or critical race theory is compatible uh, with a biblical worldview. Yes, that's exactly right. Fundamentally, wokeness means uh, being awake to the nature of America as a systemically racist and uh, unjustly unequal society. So when you wake up to that, you become essentially an activist against that situation, that complex of factors. And then critical race theory means uh, this this academic discipline, it signals this academic discipline that trains you to understand that America is divided along the lines of racial power dynamics such that white people effectively function as oppressors who foment white supremacy, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And people of color are uh, are structurally oppressed people, uh, no matter what their situation is, whether they are millionaires or poor, it does not matter. That's how critical race theory approaches uh, our society. So these these ideologies, as you very rightly said just a minute ago, are cousins. They're very similar. They're simpatico with one another, and they pose a major threat to the Christian faith today. Tragically, very few Christians are being warned about these mm-hmm. systems, and even fewer still are being trained to understand them. And so that means that the gospel and the Christian worldview more generally is in danger of being hijacked today. Now, one of the things I want to emphasize before we move on is as an African-American, I know that racism exists in this country, but I wholly reject critical race theory. One of the uh, components of it is there's no redemption. It's not a, a matter of identifying racism as it exists either systematically or in the life of the individual. There's no redemption. You will always be the oppressor. I will always be the victim. There's no reconciliation or restoration. You are perpetually owing the victim, which would be me in this case. Um, and it just, it's again, antithetical to the Christian principle of redemption through Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can kind of understand how it has a sort of secular pull to it. If you take grace out of your worldview, if you take forgiveness and unity in Christ out of your way of thinking, honestly, this way of thought makes a lot of sense because it's basically a world of holding one another to account writ large across generations. Now, I don't mean to to indicate that these concepts are sound, but I do mean if you deny the existence of forgiveness, of grace, of getting over past sins, of making societal progress, if you believe that the, the evils of the past can never be overcome, 
then this is the system for you because it allows you basically to stereotype people to buy into race essentialism, the, the vision that there is a hard and fast reality of whiteness and blackness, for example, that separates us as human people. And then you can live in this kind of perpetual victimhood cycle where, yes, America has real failings and sins in its past. Uh, it, it, it hasn't magically extinguished them in the present, and we're going to fight partiality in the future. But this system teaches you that America is actually more racist today mm-hmm. in 2021 than in the days of white supremacy in the 19th century. And that is a claim that shows you that we are not in a system that is actually working against racism and for justice here. We are working with a system that is pro-racism in a new form, even though very few people know it to be that. Mm. And unlike the civil rights movement, the goal isn't a level playing field where we all have equal opportunity uh, to develop our gifts and to pursue opportunities. That's that's not the goal. It is to foment the, the kind of disunity that says you will owe me always and I will uh, take from you always because that's just your nature and there's no getting around it. Yes, it's very similar to when in a personal relationship we reject forgiveness. Uh, we all know that there can be hard relationships that we face. Every one of us does in some form. And we think in certain instances, I'm going to hang on to my bitterness here. Uh, this person has come to me and asked forgiveness, but it feels freeing to be angry. Uh, to, to be a victim in our own mind. In reality, that, that is to be trapped. That is to be imprisoned by your anger. And, and tragically, uh, that is what wokeness does. It traps you in a cycle of anger and victimhood where you never can move past America's past failings, especially those that were codified in law and policy. And instead, you bring the, the anger of the past into the, into the present. And you then indict people who have had no participation, let's say, in slavery or Jim Crow or segregation, and are often bewildered by the claims of critical race theory. But that's what this system trains you to do. In doing so, it doesn't free you. It's not, it's not solving the problem of racism. It's actually entrapping you. Satan is actually behind this system, and, and he loves it because there's no forgiveness in it. There's no peace in it. And there certainly is no gospel unity in the name of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a neo-Marxist system. Uh, Before we go to break here, can you give us a definition of critical race theory and wokeness? Yes, critical race theory is the view that America is divided along the lines of racial power dynamics with white people effectively in neo-Marxist terms as oppressors, people of color as the oppressed. Wokeness is the broader mindset and mentality, I believe, that embracing critical race theory creates. So lots of people are never going to read a page of CRT, but they can be woke, which means being awake to the nature of systemic racism and inequality in America. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Owen Strand. He is the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness. How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. The book is published by Salem Books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation with Dr. Owen Strand. He is the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. Now, when you think about the broader culture, there are major concerns about critical race theory and this call to become woke. But as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, I'm most concerned about the problematic elements of the church embracing critical race theory. So let's talk about why it's problematic and where you see this headed if the church doesn't wake up. Yeah, great question. As I say in uh, Christianity and Wokeness, this new book, fundamentally, this is not the way to view the world because critical race theory, if embraced, actually trains you in neo-racism. It's grounded in race essentialism, or what is sometimes called strategic essentialism. Critical race theory is not actually grounded in the Christian faith or in a foundational truth system. It's grounded in midair. Its feet are firmly planted in midair. It's a postmodern system, but it trains us to at least act as if race is a real thing. And in doing so, it then builds off of that and says the history of America means that whiteness effectively creates a system of white supremacy that entraps people of color. And so we need to recognize this is a system that is making truth claims, not truth claims that are grounded in Christianity, uh, but truth claims that are grounded in neo-Marxist ideology. And the Christian faith speaks a much, much better word. It trains us that everybody is made in the image of God, that we have all fallen in Adam, Genesis 3, a real historical fall by a real historical Adam, and that we do all commit sins against one another. We do show partiality against one another, including because of skin color and background, and that is vile. That's sinful. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Christian faith actually gives you the moral framework to know that racism is wrong, unlike postmodernism, which has no such foundation. Now, do critical race theorists um, see uh, CRT running parallel to Christianity in that social justice is ultimately the goal? Or do they, as neo-Marxists, reject the notion of religion or Christianity in particular as being part of the problem? That's a great question. You hear different tones from different people. Probably the best known woke voice in America today is Eber Max Kendi, mm-hmm. a professor at Boston University. And Kendi rejects the form of Christianity, some sort of undefined form, but he rejects Protestant Christianity for what he calls anti-racism. And he has gone so far as to say that, this is a direct quote, anti-racism is life. And what he seems to mean by that is that even though he doesn't give you a fully coherent religious worldview, actually, Uh, his version of wokeness can function in those terms. If you will embrace being an anti-racist and working for social justice through anti-racism, you will end up uh, partaking of life. You will end up fully living. So we need to recognize that what voices like Kendi's offer us may not have a fully mapped out religious worldview, but they at least are functioning as if their worldview is the true one, and they and that we should not follow the Christian worldview, we should follow them. And there we see that these are oppositional systems. You cannot blend Christianity with critical race theory or with wokeness or with intersectionality the way people say you can. Now, how does this 
uh, align with or does it align with um, the liberal view of Christianity in which the general moral good, as opposed to the redemption of the individual soul through Jesus Christ, is ultimately the goal? Does this appeal to um, the, the, the more of a liberal view of, of Christianity? That is the point I make in the opening pages of this book. Uh, I think that this is basically a racialized form of the social gospel of a hundred mm-hmm. years ago. So I, I think this is new in one sense in that it's strongly focused on solving so-called systemic racism, which is basically a made up concept today in America from the left. But I, I do think it has all the, the infrastructure. It, it's built on the skeleton of the social gospel of a hundred years ago, which we thought in Protestant circles basically died out. Uh, Georgie, it turns out that the social gospel is not dead at all. No, It's back. It has a new spin. It has a strongly racial spin uh, that fits our age because everybody in America is terrified of being even called a racist. If you even throw the charge of racism in many people's direction, they, they will fall to the ground. They won't think it through. They won't defend themselves. They won't separate genuine partiality, true racism, so-called, from from fake racist charges. They will simply flee. And uh, anti-racists and woke voices and critical race theorists know that. And very, very few people will respond to the system. Very few people will destroy the stronghold in a 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6 cents. And that is a huge part of why the racialized social gospel is advancing so imperially today. Mm. And why your book, uh, Christianity and Wokeness, is so important right now so that we can understand what's happening. And the fact that, from my perspective, this is a devilish plot to try to weaken the church and undermine God's calling on his people. Now, can you explain the concepts? You kind of touched on them a little bit. The concepts of white privilege and white supremacy, which, again, are used to bludgeon uh, Caucasians in our culture. Yeah, white privilege basically means that because white people are the dominant group, the majority group in American culture, there's just a horde of benefits that they have that people of color cannot have. So America is not an equal society um, because wokeness functions out of the, the ideology of, of neo-Marxism, and it believes that everybody should have equality of outcome, it believes that fundamentally to even have a majority culture is basically wrong. So white privilege is a very bad thing. I say this in the book, Georgine, but I think much of what woke voices call white privilege and indict as sinful and wrong is simply a function of having a majority culture. Mm -hmm. Most countries in the world have a majority culture. And there are some societal norms in Japan or in Russia or in Nigeria uh, or in Canada, places in Canada. Majority culture should not be understood as perfect, nor do I think, at least in a lot of places, should it be understood as inherently fundamentally evil. It's really a blend of things. But what critical race theory and wokeness do is poison majority culture, weaponize majority culture, and tell us that when you have a lot of white people, you have this condition of white supremacy. That's the second term you asked about. White supremacy does not refer to burning crosses in front yards anymore. It refers to what happens when white people are white out in public. 
And that means that white people are constantly transmitting the biopower of whiteness. Uh, they're committing all sorts of what are called microaggressions in conversation, where because they are the, the majority group, they are effectively oppressing people, whether or not they ever say something racist or do something racist or not. So as you said a minute ago, this is a devilish system because it tells you that you are inherently racist as a white person or if you're somebody who hasn't challenged white supremacy. And then if you deny that you're a racist, it says, see, your denial proves that you're a racist. So it has you either way. It has all the exits covered. And that's one of the ways that it shows that it is uh, a bankrupt system. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation this afternoon with Dr. Owen Strand, the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. I think there's something appealing in general to believers who want desperately to be relevant in the culture, who want to address uh, issues of wrong and to try to set them right. Uh, the, the phrase social justice just appeals to the Christian heart where you want to to see things um uh, repaired, and yet um, there is a move afoot that uh, would would draw us in and draw us away from what the scriptures teach. And I appreciate so much what this book, Christianity and Wokeness, does in helping to inform us not only what it means, how it's infiltrating the church, but what we can do uh, to stop it. Uh, because as followers of Jesus, our primary concern, I mean, the culture is going to go uh, its way. But what I'm primarily concerned about as a Christian is what does this mean for the church? And are we being distracted and, and lured away from what God is calling us to do? Now, Dr. Strand, do you think that um, uh, there is a purposeful indoctrination happening in the media, in the culture and schools and even in our churches? And what does that mean for believers and the church moving forward? Yeah, there are hard forms and softer forms. The harder forms are typically in our public school classrooms today, where critical race theory is definitely being taught. Uh, The left has reacted to the backlash, the just backlash, against CRT and wokeness by saying that conservatives and the far right are making CRT this boogeyman, uh, and and they're they're protesting that um, teaching against racism is happening in schools. And, and so the far right doesn't want to acknowledge racism. Again, it's, it's, it's creating this boogeyman. That is not at all the case. Um, CRT is very clearly getting into our schools. To give just one example, the Buffalo school system uh, was outed through internal documents uh, as teaching that white people are effectively white supremacists, because the kind of ideas that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so this is out there. This is, this is, this is in the mix. We should assume it's in the boardroom. Uh, it's, it's now increasingly in movies. It's in public schools. It's in entertainment. And it's definitely getting into the church. In many cases, it gets into the church in a soft form. And that's, that's the way it works with the social gospel as well. Very few Protestant pastors are going to stand up and give an hour-long diatribe about critical race theory in, in a pro-CRT way. What they're going to do is they're going to Christianize it, and that's compromised, but they're going to say, we need to think through white fragility, white privilege, white supremacy. We need to think about um, uh, systemic racism and structural inequality. And that's the way that, that wokeness is getting into the church today, through the usage of those terms and then through literature that promotes this worldview, even though many pastors will say, 
they're not themselves fully woke or fully pro CRT. They're just trying to introduce some of the ideas for consideration. And it's through such weak and compromised leadership that the church is being influenced by the woke social gospel. Hmm. My next question was going to be, what are some of the signs of a woke church? And you've answered that question. But how can we address our concerns with church leadership? It, it can be awkward. It can be uh, challenging, strained. It, how can we approach as parishioners and, and perhaps among our listeners today, some leaders in the church? How can we do that in a way that's consistent with a, a Christian worldview, but addresses what's going wrong? Great question. As I say in Christianity and Wokeness, my new book, life is too short to sit under unsound doctrine. So what you need to do if these ideas are getting into your church, and you will be able to tell, you will know when secular sociology is coming into the pulpit and and the preacher is no longer standing upon the Word of God. If you hear the kind of ideas that we have talked about in this show, uh, then indeed you are hearing Wokeness talking. And I would encourage your listeners and I know you have many, to make an appointment with their pastor, their elders, whoever it may be, and sit them down and graciously talk through their convictional concerns. And if the leadership does not change course, does not repent, that's what they should do, uh, then it is time for you to find a new church, and you should do so uh, with wind in your sails, because you do not want to be taken captive by godless ideology, Colossians 2.8. And if you have a family— as many folks will, you don't want them to be taken captive. You want to sit under sound doctrine, and you want to sit under the ministry of Christ's gospel, which is not a gospel fundamentally of of racial hostility. It is a gospel of fundamental unity through the blood of Jesus Christ. What's at stake if the Church veers off course, as it sometimes does, uh, with critical race theory and becoming woke, reflecting the culture rather than the gospel? What's going to happen is what happened 100 years ago with the social gospel, which tore through evangelicalism like a tornado. Um, Basically, the social gospel took over many churches, many schools, many seminaries, many institutions, missions, agencies, and so on. And it corrupted them. And it caused many uh, one-time evangelical institutions to stop preaching the gospel of the new birth and to start preaching the gospel of cultural change. And to this day, the American mainline is still dying on the vine because of the, the introduction of the social gospel roughly 100 years ago. If we do not want that to happen in our time again, basically 100 years later, uh, we are going to have to fight like crazy, not fighting out of hatred of flesh and blood, uh, fighting out of love, love for God, love for God's truth, and love for image bearers. And church members, we don't want taken captive by these ideologies. We know how this story plays out. It played out just 100 years ago. There are books, dozens of books, written about the effects of the social gospel. And uh, it's going to happen again. It is now playing out in real time again. Satan is using a racialized social gospel in our day. And it is time for every Christian to get to the ramparts. It is time for every Christian to get to the wall. One of the major ways... You can do that, whether you are in ministry or not, whether you ever spend a minute in a seminary class or not. It does not matter. You can get equipped on these issues. You can read a book like mine, Christianity and Wokeness. You can pick up Bodie Bauckham's Fault Line. Mm -hmm. You can get Jeffrey Johnson's What Every Christian Needs to Know About Social Justice. And you can get equipped. And then you can start talking to people in your church, in your social group, in your workplace, in your school, and you can take a stand. 
And oftentimes, you actually don't need 6,000 people to take a stand for it to be effective. In many cases, the fire is lit by just one person in a community, in a church, in whatever environment it may be. So do not think that you are too small for the task and that God cannot use you because perhaps you may not be in ministry. That is a lie. God will use a Christian as salt and light in incredible ways if we will stand on the Word of God. Amen. We're talking about Christianity and wokeness. I should mention that you have a recommended uh, recommended reading list, which is very helpful. You have some secular sources to understand wokeness uh, from proponents, as well as understanding wokeness from non-Christians and to answer wokeness for Christians. So that's in the book, as well as a glossary of terms as you're hearing them used to understand what's meant by them so that we can speak clearly and with understanding about this this issue in our day. Once again, the book is titled Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. The book is published by Salem Books just out, and I would highly recommend you read it if you want to be relevant and understand what's happening in the culture. I think you need to, to do so with, you know, on your knees praying, God, how would you use me to speak truth to the culture and to the church uh, as needed. Uh, Dr. Strand, I am so grateful for you and your willingness to stand on truth and equip fellow believers so that we can honor Christ in our day here in the 21st century. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, those are very gracious words. I appreciate you very much, Georgine, and thank you for having me on. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. By the way, if you happen to be in your car and didn't get the title of the book, you can go to The Georgine Rice Show Facebook page or kpdq.com. You can call the office. We want to make sure you get Christianity and Wokeness, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Mexican President Obrado, I should say Obrador, uh, gave President Biden a list of demands in exchange for helping with the border crisis. A list of demands. Now, what would cause him to feel emboldened to issue a list of demands? Well, how much of the $20 billion he's asking for... Um, is going toward the drug cartels. Some are asking, well, the Mexican president, he issued a lengthy series of demands detailing what the U.S. must offer in exchange for Mexico's help in stemming the flow of migrants to the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, He demands, uh, or rather his demands, came during a Friday press conference, which came roughly a week after he met with Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who is facing, by the way, impeachment and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in Mexico City in late December. Well, the U.S. officials requested that Mexico boost its assistance in stopping illegal immigration. Uh, The president uh, of Mexico responded by demanding the U.S. give $20 billion to Latin American and Caribbean countries, grant work visas to 10 million Hispanics who have worked in the U.S. for at least 10 years, and end sanctions against Venezuela and halt the blockade of Cuba. Embolden, I think, is a as the word. Well, the negotiations came at a critical time for the president, whose polling numbers on illegal immigration have been low throughout his presidency. The U.S. also suffers a surge of migrants at the border this fall, with roughly 240,000 monthly migrants and migrant encounters at the border in late 2023. 
Well, President Biden claims to have started a civil started the civil rights movement in a speech given yesterday as part of his campaign of fear due to his inability to campaign on his crisis failed record and policies. The president traveled to Charleston on Monday to deliver a speech at the Mother Emanuel AME Church, where nine congregants were murdered by a white supremacist in 2015. As usual, his speech was off the rails in uh, in short order. I've spent more time in Bethel AME Church in Wilmington, Delaware, than most people I know, black or white, have spent in that church because that's where I started a civil rights movement, he said. And that's a direct quote. Well, of course, none of that is true. Uh, The president claimed he attended a black church more than black people in Delaware and that he started the civil rights movement. And not a single fact checker said or will say a word against it. Well, the Iran-backed terrorist group Hezbollah said Monday that one of its top commanders has been killed in an airstrike, the strike on Jawad al-Tawil, who led the group's uh, Radwan forces, was carried out by the Israeli military. He was traveling in a car with another Hezbollah fighter in the village in southern uh, uh, Lebanon when he was struck. Since Israel took the fight to Gaza to defeat Hamas, Hezbollah has traded near daily fire with Israel over the border. A broader war between Israel and Hezbollah has yet to break out, but conflict across the Middle East is threatening to spiral out of control as the attacks continue. The U.S. is also fighting against Iranian-backed groups in Iraq, Syria, and the Red Sea. More than 100 Hezbollah fighters have reportedly died since Israel and, the, and Hezbollah began trading deadly fire over the border. Pro-Palestinian protesters defaced the Los Angeles National Cemetery on Sunday, a national burial space where more than 80,000 veterans of World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, and more are laid to rest. Protesters spray-painted Free Gaza on the entrance to the memorial and chanted Long Live Palestine. There is only one solution. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And Biden, Biden, you're a liar, according to video footage of the event. Hundreds of protesters held signs that read, ceasefire now, stop bombing Gaza and end the occupation now, stop the genocide and more. One side read, uh, Zionists equals Nazi. Well, one attorney, Sam Yebri, said that today pro-Hamas Extremists in L.A. sunk to a new low, vandalizing the venerable grounds of the Los Angeles National Cemetery, where 85,000 American heroes who sacrificed their lives for our freedom are interned. They even used a Nazi concentration camp symbol of an upside uh, red triangle. President Biden would not accept the resignation of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin if it were offered, we learned. The president is not considering firing the defense secretary, who we learned earlier today, along with the president, for the first time that he had prostate surgery. Beyond that, one official noted the president would not accept a resignation if Austin were to offer one. The Pentagon had already announced that Austin wasn't planning to resign. Senator Tom Cotton weighed in, saying, what's worse, Secretary of Defense not telling the president... He was in hospital or that no one um, at the White House noticed. It raises serious questions about President Biden's competence and leadership. Republicans have begun impeachment hearings into Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. State employee, uh, state attorneys, rather, attorneys general from the homeland will testify at the first impeachment hearing of DHS Secretary Mayorkas on Wednesday and will describe the, the effect of 
the ongoing migrant crisis has had on their states, despite their distance from the besieged border. Montana Attorney General Austin Knudsen, Oklahoma Attorney General uh, Gentner Drummond and Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey will testify about the impacts of the crisis on their states, as well as the illegal challenges that they have uh, launched against the Biden administration policies. They are also expected to describe how they believe Mayorkas is not enforcing the law. Republicans will have uh, to navigate extremely tenuous vote math uh, with Representative Bill Johnson leaving later in January and House Majority Leader um, Steve Scalise working remotely until February. Their margin could be as narrow as just two votes, meaning they will need to get nearly all Republicans on um, on their side, including some such as Representative Ken Buck, who continue to voice hesitancy. An explosion in Fort Worth, Texas, injured at least 20 people. The uh, hotel was the scene of an explosion on Monday, resulting in at least 21 injuries and a chaotic scene of destruction with windows, concrete and a gaping hole in the sidewalk left in the aftermath. The Fort Worth Police Department reported that they were working a major incident in the downtown portion of the city and advised people to avoid the area. Though it was later revealed by the city's fire department that an explosion happened at the Sandman Hotel. Fort Worth Fire Department public information officer said 21 people were injured with the explosion with one in critical condition, four listed in serious condition and the rest with minor injuries. He added that 14 people were transported to area hospitals. A big gas explosion at the Sandman Signature Hotel in downtown Fort Worth, Texas. One headline read. Well, pundits on both sides of the political aisle have speculated for months over whether President Biden might bow out of the 2024 presidential race as he faces increased scrutiny over his age and struggling poll numbers. In fact, uh, Michelle Obama made an appearance uh, the last uh, I guess it was just yesterday in which speculation swirled as maybe she intends to run and uh, perhaps at the last minute. During the convention, be nominated. Well, now a top analyst at the nation's largest bank suggests the possibility should not be ruled out. Michael Symbolist, the chairman of market and investment strategy at J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management, listed Biden dropping out of the race as one of his 10 predicted surprises for this year in his 2024 Pillow Talk Outlook. Well, as many as 200 feds were at the Capitol on January 6th, someday... There'll be a good, honest book written on the FBI's involvement in the events of January 6, 2021, but it won't be written by a Trump-hating um, opponent, and it won't be written by a bureaucrat pencil-pushing stooge like FBI Director Chris Wray, who's done nothing but stonewall House and Senate Republicans in their quest for clarification. We learned long ago the, that the FBI was involved. New York Times national security correspondent Matt Rosenberg made that clear long ago during an unguarded moment with Project Veritas. But we've yet to learn how many agents and other assets were involved and to uh, what extent. Now, though, a U.S. congressman is suggesting that the number is much higher than any of us thought. We believe that there were as many as 200 FBI undercover assets operating in the crowd outside the Capitol, embedded into groups that entered the Capitol or provoked entry of the Capitol, said Louisiana Republican Clay Higgins. Let that sink in. 
Uh, Higgins, who himself has a law enforcement background, made that revelation during a recent interview with Tucker Carlson. More than a year ago, Higgins put the question to Ray, did you have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters inside the Capitol on January 6th, prior to the door being opened? To which Ray ducked and dodged and weaved and refused to answer. To which a disgusted Carlson replied, what a sleazy, repulsive, little authoritarian liar Chris Ray is. And by the way, that's a quote. What Director Ray doesn't seem to understand is that his lack of transparency only adds fuel to the conspiratorial fire such as it is. The American people deserve to know the truth about what happened that day, but it won't most likely be revealed today. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there were nearly a thousand carjackings in Washington in 2023. The nation's capital experienced 959 carjackings last year, double the total of the year prior. Back in 2019, Washington, D.C. reported 152 carjackings. And to make matters worse, 65% of these carjackings were committed by individuals under the age of 18. Unfortunately, D.C.'s growing crime problem isn't limited to carjacking. The city hit a two-decade high in homicides with 274 people killed, which represents a 36% increase over the year before. Robberies jumped 67% last year, totaling 3,470. Vehicle thefts jumped by 82%, with 6,800 cars stolen. And even relatively uncommon crimes, such as arson, saw a significant jump last year, with 11 cases reported. There were just four reported arson cases in 2022. D.C. crime problem is what is uh, what um, uh, governing policies get you in the the uh, district where the biggest concern is not holding individuals accountable to the law, but pursuing social justice uh, equity outcomes at the uh, cost of safety for residents in D.C. and visitors for that matter. And it doesn't look like things will get better anytime soon. Just five days into the new year, 53 cars were reported stolen in the nation's capital. Well, they're telling us we're facing a credit card crisis. And while the president and his cohorts in the media are attempting to convince Americans that the economy is doing just fine, the data shows just the opposite in the case, is the case rather. One troubling metric is that of Americans' credit card debt. A worrying 49% of credit card holders are now carrying a balance um, Month to month, that's up from 39% in 2021 when Biden rescued America. Of those carrying a monthly credit card debt, 58% or roughly 56 million people have held that debt for over a year. That's up from 50% last year. U.S. credit card debt now totals over a trillion dollars. Bank rate senior industry, rather industry analyst Ted Rossman explains over the past two years, Americans' credit card balances have skyrocketed 40%, according to the New York Fed. Most cardholders' uh, rates have risen five and a quarter percent points during that span as a result of the Fed rate hikes meant to combat inflation. In other words, credit card debt is getting more costly. Americans have uh, cut streaming services, perhaps to tighten their belts. Another sign that the economy is not as rosy as the administration claims is seen in Americans' entertainment consumption. The number of Americans cutting down on subscriptions to streaming services rose to 6.3% in November, up from 5.1% the year before. As the major streaming services, including the likes of Netflix and Apple TV Plus, have raised their monthly subscription rates, the number of customers trimming down on major subscriptions 
has increased from 15% two years ago to roughly 25%. When the cost of everything rises, people naturally pull back their uh, spending on the non-essentials. A corporate office crisis is looming. Next time you're in a big city, take a moment to scan the horizon for tall buildings. What you see is office space and lots of it. And since the COVID-19 pandemic, this space has been largely uninhabited. Nearly 20 percent of it is unoccupied. In fact, the most since 1979. The Daily Mail reported on the possible consequences. Billions of dollars in loans on office buildings that are about to come due could play havoc on the U.S. economy after interest rates soared. About $117 billion worth of unexpected, or rather is expected to be due this year and needs to be repaid or refinanced, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. A big chunk of it is at risk of defaulting and costing banks and developers huge sums, sending some into insolvency. Such is the state of affairs in our gig economy, whose hallmarks are freelance and temporary workers and accommodating work from home arrangements, none of which is conducive to heading into the office every day. Will this threaten the current economy? Well, it's hard to say, but as the mail continues, the prospect of a widespread default and subsequent dips in demand could stifle construction and development in major U.S. cities, many of which are still struggling to recover in the aftermath of, well, the pandemic. Well, the effort to eliminate American history by the administration continues apace in Philadelphia these days, where a statue of the city's founder and the Keystone State's namesake, William Penn, may be removed. And just the news reported, the National Park Service says it is rehabilitating Philadelphia's Welcome Park to ensure it is more welcoming, accurate and inclusive for visitors. And part of that plan includes removing a statue of the city's founder, William Penn. The Park Service also aimed to remove the model of Penn's home, known as the Slate Roof House, which is uh, was built at Welcome Park's current location and which was named for the ship, the welcome, which Penn took from his native England to America in 1682. Penn was a writer, a religious thinker, and an influential Quaker, and he was known for supporting good relations with local Native Americans, but that doesn't matter now. For now, at least, the plan has been retracted, but iconoclastic uh, leftists never do seem to quit, so it's just the latest round. Well, the AARP... AMAC battle is continuing. Recently, uh, we've seen some interesting advertisements from AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. The conciliatory language is notable. You may not always agree with AARP, the ads acknowledge, but uh, before adding, but and then encouraging conservative viewers to go against their self-interest and join the increasingly left-wing organization. And make no mistake, AARP is a left-wing organization. At the Federalist, Mark Hemingway writes, Though AARP was supposed to represent a large and politically diverse cross-section of older Americans, its transformation into an overtly partisan Democrat organization is hard to deny, end quote. He did continue telling us all we need to know about AARP's radicalism. Recently, he writes, AARP lobbied heavily for the Biden administration's disastrous and ironically named Inflation Reduction Act. AARP's biggest congressional critic, Senator Rand Paul, recently noted that of AARP's 94 congressional lobbying events during the debate over the Inflation Reduction Act, only one was held in support of a Republican officeholder. The rest were, well, on the other side. On the bright side, AARP is 
uh, is getting some competition from the right, from AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC's dues-paying members, a membership rather, is 2.2 million members. It's dwarfed by AARP's claimed membership of 38 million, but that gap should continue to close as more seniors begin paying attention to the politics. President Biden compared former president and current presidential candidate Trump and his supporters to defeated Confederates in a South Carolina speech. Congregants at Mother Emanuel AME Church chanted four more years to Biden, raising the question, is that the uh, Christian nationalism we've heard about? Well, former President Trump uh, filed a flurry of motions seeking to dismiss the Georgia election charges. And the U.S. Department of Labor on Tuesday issued a final rule that will force companies to treat some workers as employees rather than less expensive independent contractors. And a move that has riled business groups and will likely prompt legal challenges. The rule is widely expected to increase labor costs for industries that rely on contract labor or freelancers, such as trucking, manufacturers, healthcare, and app-based gig services. Joe Biden is producing more oil than Donald Trump did, according to Newsweek magazine. And China likely dethroned Japan as the world's top auto exporter in 2023. A Navy service member who sold secrets to China has been sentenced to just 27 months in prison. Reuters and AP journalists live streamed themselves encouraging Gazans to invade Israel. And a senior Hezbollah commander was killed in an alleged Israeli strike as border tensions mount. Meanwhile, the Biden administration warned Israel against taking major military action against Hezbollah. And in a bit of satire, the Department of Justice sues Texas, saying it's against the law to pass a law to enforce the law. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blind for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.